Listeners are advised that all names and incidents portrayed in this episode have been altered to protect real-life persons. No identification with actual persons, living or deceased, should be inferred. We've heard the folk stories of Google employees working from beanbags, of open-plan offices, Friday night drinks and professional development workshops in Bali, These are extreme examples we use to convey and make tangible a very complex and intangible thing, workplace culture. In most other examples, when culture is referred to, it's because things aren't going well, when it's quote-unquote toxic. The first step to ensure you avoid joining the second, less glamorous club is knowing that culture will happen, whether you design it or not. That it's not enough to plaster value statements on the foyer wall or add coffee machines and ping-pong tables. Culture is deeply structural and behaviour-driven, a powerful resource only humans can create and sustain. When two mid-tier legal firms merge, the scene is set for a culture shift. Four months after announcing their intention to combine, Australian firms Bryce Close and Clume Lawyers officially merged to become Bryson Clume. The combined firm now boasts 370 staff members and has been operating as a new entity for four months. Founding partner of Bryce Close, Max Bryce, will exit the business to retire in two years following a transition and settling period. Max built the business from the ground up and has some traditional and set views on how the firm is managed. Clume Lawyer's managing partner, Sarah White, is much more progressive in her approach and sets the scene through her own open and flat leadership style. While the firms have similar values, in the merged environment the culture is shifting as the organisation grapples with two leadership styles and working within the COVID-19 environment. How do they merge the best of both old worlds for the new entity and come through the global pandemic as a solid business? You are listening to In Business with BDO. Welcome to In Business with BDO, where we bring the experts to you to share their insights on the top issues and topics impacting organisations and finance-related issues affecting individuals in Australia today. I'm your host, Jennifer Mary, and in this episode, we're exploring culture, its essential role in successful business, how to identify it, how to shift it, and how it influences organisations in times of great uncertainty. But first, what is culture? From a simplistic perspective, I really look at it as those normalised behaviours of of what's accepted in an organisation, how do we behave on a day-to-day basis, and how does that align to our belief systems? Oftentimes, we have amazing values put up on a wall, But it doesn't necessarily play out that they are actually the basis of how our culture has formed over time and and what the true behaviours are. That's Janine Waters. She's the National Leader for People Advisory across BDO Australia. Really what we do on a daily basis is we work with organisations, we work with leaders in organisations to really understand how to get the best out of their people. Nine times out of ten, that comes down to how we help them shift culture. You can tell when your culture is moving in the right direction is when people feel empowered and also feel safe to be able to call out behaviours 
that are not in alignment with what the organisation and the people and the leaders determine as being the core values and the core behaviours for the, for the environment. And that's Dr Joe Aquino, Associate Director of the People Advisory Team at BDO Brisbane. What tends to happen a lot of times in some organisations is leaders feel like they don't have the courage to actually pull up on those behaviours and then all of a sudden we start to move into a bit of a murkiness into, well, what is our culture? What are we actually standing for? And are we really aligned in all of this? As we move through the COVID-19 crisis and many begin to return to work, how we operate in our workplace cultures has never been more exposed, more challenged or more relevant as it is now. In the current COVID-19 environment, how important is culture? In a situation like this sort of crisis that we're facing right now, culture is actually key to how an organisation comes out of this in a really positive way. We rely on our employees when we're managing through a crisis to really step up and to often make sacrifices, whether that's financial in some organisations at the moment, whether it's giving more than they've ever given before, whether it's pivoting and performing in a way that they haven't had to perform in a job before. And culture really is key to enabling that to happen and to making employees feel motivated to do that, to feel aligned to our business and to say, really, I want to give my extra all to helping the business cope through this sort of crisis. They'll need to want to make those sacrifices. Exactly. They're asking you to work really differently. They're asking a huge amount of you as an employee. And you can see it play out where there are some employees and some organisations where there's a, a whole culture of we're all in this together. We're going to come out of this in a really positive way and we will all do what we need to do. In other organisations, it doesn't necessarily pan out that way. And I think where you have a culture where employees don't feel respected and valued or where there's an uncertainty in the way they are expected to behave, then that doesn't play out in the same way. And you might see more stress in the organisation. You might see more confusion as, as people try to navigate. How do I even make decisions in an environment where I can't see my manager? I don't have the same sort of mechanisms in place as I have before. Or you can see in the media a lot of disgruntled employees who are really struggling to understand understand why businesses made the, the decisions that they've made and all of that plays out to a much lower performance potentially for the organisation and it's a, a much more difficult feat then to come through a crisis like this. Now there's dozens of cliches about the toughest steel being forged in the hottest fire, about strength leading to adversity, about diamonds forming under monumental pressure and according to Joe. As far as the cultural impact that COVID-19 could have on businesses, you can take your pick of metaphors because they all check out. If we think back to the case study where the culture was in that state of flux and there's two cultures sort of merging together, I think if you can even use the term benefit, but the benefit of COVID-19 is that the behaviours that organisations are seeing now are probably the baseline of where the culture is. So these are the things like the extent to which people put in discretional effort, the way they're supporting each other, the communication style and alignment and messaging from the leadership. They're all indicators of where the culture is right now. 
it's not one of those things where culture is not just an insurance policy that you pull out in times of stress and crisis. It's actually happening all the time. So I think when we think about the COVID-19 environment and we have an opportunity to pause, it's a good opportunity to look and reflect and think about the behaviours that you've seen in your organisation because that gives you a really good temperature check as to what your culture is. And then that allows you to make decisions post-COVID-19 what you want to change and where do you want to shift it? Or are you happy with what you're saying? However, there was life before the pandemic. And while COVID-19 is dragging the discussion around culture onto main stage, culture has always persisted and it's been under the microscope before, never more than when bad culture is identified on a national level. We talked about earlier why people talk about culture these days. The Royal Commission, I think, has elevated that discussion of culture significantly. Janine is talking about the Haynes Royal Commission, which focused on the financial sector, looking at banks and insurance institutions and how they delivered on their services. And that's because we can see that not only does it have an impact on performance in organisation, it has an impact on our reputation. So I think that's a really critical outcome of that. Some of the stuff that's come to the fore as the result of the Royal Commission is really understanding, again, that alignment of it's one thing to have values or culture statements that are pretty pictures and they're, and they're put on a wall. It's another thing to understand how every aspect of how we manage our employees, how we reward our employees, how we assess performance, what we measure, all of those things um, very have a very dramatic impact on the culture of our organisation. And I think one of the things that we learned from the the Royal Commissions is that when people see others doing things or demonstrating behaviour that is questionable and then seeing the organisation and the leaders allowing that to continue without holding them to account, then what we've seen is others will follow. And that's when bad things happen. And I think, I think back to the chief of the army, Lieutenant General David Morrison said it best when he says the behavior you walk past is the behavior you accept. And I think that statement for me really sums up what we, what we're seeing with some of the Royal, Royal Commission findings out of banking and aged care. The Royal Commission certainly helped expose bad culture on a national level, which leads naturally to the million dollar question. How do you then change bad culture? really how challenging is it to shift culture? It's actually the simplest thing and the most difficult thing in the world and it's simple in that I have seen amazing businesses with brilliant cultures unravel it overnight so clearly you can negatively impact a culture very quickly. By the same token to to sit down and design and build a culture based on what you want it to be trying to understand all of the elements that are going to go into creating that and reinforcing it. It's not the easiest thing. However, what it comes back down to from my mind and the way we talk about culture to our clients is at the centre of it is getting your leadership correct. I think one of the things is when we're thinking about shifting culture, you know, I've seen organisations just, they're just, they're going too big. They're trying too hard to pull out all these programs, run all these documentation, run all these workshops. And I think that while those things are useful and yes, you need to do them, I think that it's easier to go back to basics. And the basics are that people matter. As human beings, we all know what it feels like when somebody shows us that we matter. You know, we know what that feels like. We know the behaviors. And if we had an environment where every leader was showing people 
that they work with every day that they matter through recognising effort, thanking them for a job well done, providing timely feedback. And then those people in our organisations were also showing other people in our organisation that they matter and our customers that they matter. That's actually going to shift your culture and, and that's something that everyone can do every single day. You'll hear the term leaders a lot while we talk culture because according to Joe and Janine, culture shift really does start at the top. So if we talk about the case study, you've got two different law firms. You have one leader who has created a very open style of leadership, highly collaborative. I'm imagining that people within her firm are really clear about the decisions that they can make and are very confident in making them. You've got another um, part of the firm now coming in where people are probably used to a far more deliberate style of decision making. Um, they might be used to continually passing decisions up the line, for example, or there might be very formalised processes within how decisions are made. So when you start to sort of unpack that, you can see that whilst you might naturally think that one culture would would very quickly permeate through the, the rest of the business, in fact, there's probably skill sets that need to be developed in other parts of the business. There's confidence that needs to be raised where people can feel like, actually, I can step in here and I can make this decision and the consequences will only be positive. So you can start to see that it is again simple because you can start to very quickly see how different behaviours are reinforced but also there's some complexity in understanding how do you help people feel equipped to make those decisions to act in the way that is now you know considered the standard practice within your firm and to feel comfortable that that is in fact encouraged and will be rewarded appropriately. And thinking about in that case study how Bryce had this particular style of leadership and to change takes a lot of courage and humility for someone who's used to having a lot of control perhaps in the way they lead to admit their weaknesses or faults or ask for help or doing all those things that require a lot of humility and vulnerability Um, and that's uncomfortable and that's going to be hard for a, a leader who's not used to that. Definitely. And I will say, we work with a lot of founder-led organisations, which is what I find really interesting around this particular case study. And I do find that there's some cultural elements in founder-led organisations that are unique because you do have a person who has created a very successful business off the back of their specific style. And often there's points in time where the organisation gets to a point in their growth or where they're now sort of starting to practice in, in an industry that's slightly shifting or where an employees are coming in and really wanting something different. So you're asking a person to change what has fundamentally been the basis of their success for their last 20-odd years of their career or longer. So it can be a very confronting process for someone to go through that. And it takes a huge amount of courage for someone to step up and say, right, I can see that for the betterment of my business, I'm going to need to shift and change. It's, it, it's very different discussions with each of these sorts of leaders as to what helps them get there. But often, by the time they're talking to organisations like ours, they're already seeing that there's a performance gap that starts to occur that they're trying to shift. I think that the reason why it's such a common topic is because um, we've moved a long way in, in organisations over the last 80 years and they've realised that leaders know that organisations that put people before profits are the ones that are the most innovative, creative and they're leaders in their field, and often they attract the best talent. So I think leaders realise that 
this is the way that we need to move. And if you if you have a look at the top 50 places, best places to work, so in 2019, you'll see names of places like Hilton, Mecca Brands, Mars Australia. Look, they're in the top 10 about great places to work. And are they profitable? Well, absolutely they are. But what's common about them is that they put their people first. You look at Mecca and they talk about empowering women to look and feel their best. And they can't do that if we don't empower our own people to be the best they can be. What we're seeing is leaders moving away from profits, profits, driving driving the profits and driving that as being the winning formula instead thinking about, well, the formula is the best people working in the environment that allows them to bring their best produces the best results both for their people but also for their profit margin. I think what great leaders understand now is you can tweak a whole lot um, when it comes to your organisation. You can look at the way you're structured, you can look at your processes, you can look at your systems, but fundamentally you can have all of that working perfectly, but if you have a culture that doesn't allow people to perform at their best, then those things don't actually make up for that lack of a really high-performing culture. And when we come into organisations, we're often asked to help diagnose what's an issue, why aren't we performing in the way that we should be performing and nearly always it comes down to an element of culture. When you have a culture that is toxic or really just doesn't have people really wanting to be there, the cost of that is significant. So you have high turnover, you will have more issues with your customers because you don't have that same amazing customer experience. So not only does it then detract from your revenue line, but it also means your cost of doing business is much higher when you're constantly having to reinvest in bringing new people in, teaching them new skills, getting them aligned, trying to deliver the customer experience that you want to deliver. So really great leaders understand that and are investing more and more in trying to build that great culture. You build it and then you have to keep reinforcing it. And every time you bring a new leader in, you've got to redo that work again to make sure that you're continuing to keep that great culture on track and and the idea of like the leader is the smartest person in the room those days are gone the leader is not the smartest person in the room the people in the room are the smartest people in the room and the diversity of the people you've got in the room that actually produces the outcome because if it was just one person who is all you needed to be successful then why would we have these organizations full of people full of desks full of offices The leader's role is really just to create an environment where you can attract those really smart people and have them wanting to all sit around the table and then step back and allow them to do the work that they need to do to make the business a success. And sure, you'll have a contribution to make. There'll be a strength that you bring to the team as well, presumably. That's why you got to the role in the first place. But it's not to take over and it's not to control the conversation and it's not to control the outcome. In the case of Bryson Clume Lawyers, one of the two merging leaders, Max Bryce, was more traditional in leadership style and highly risk-averse. But a prescient question is, should your culture be open to risk? Will it actually lead to innovation? I still remember one example that comes to the fore really quickly. I was working in an organisation in an in-house HR function 
and we had what I would consider to be a fairly innovative culture. We had people who were relatively good at taking risks within the parameters of the type of business that we were in and we had a new leader come on board who had a very different approach and there were some behaviours that came out really quickly. One was that if you made a mistake, all of a sudden you were held to account for that. Now he considered that to be a really strong performance measure. You know, if you make a mistake, you need to be held accountable. But what happened is people stopped taking risk. Otherwise, they might be held to an account in a way that didn't feel comfortable to them. So all of a sudden, people who were trying new things, taking a little bit of a step outside of their normal comfort zone were saying, hmm, I'll stick with the tried and true and I'll just do it the way we've already done it. And all of a sudden, you went from an organization who was shifting, changing, making new things happen to, in fact, an organization that was everybody had started to learn that the best way to get ahead was to just be relatively conservative and do what we've already done in the past. So it's a really tricky balance, I think, from a risk perspective in allowing people to step up and to try new things and to do that in a way that feels safe and to recognise that sometimes failing is, in fact, an amazing thing. Um, Failing is just a way of investing and developing your skill sets and can lead to amazing innovations. Does the size of the organisation impact culture? Yes, size of business absolutely um, has an impact in your ability to shift it. What we often see in organisations that we work with is you go from being a startup company to people working in a broom closet. We can converse on a daily basis. Decision making is really quick and easy. And then all of a sudden we've doubled, tripled, quadrupled in size. Two years later, we're 80 to 100 people. And all of the things that created that very flexible, agile, culture when we were two or three people, in fact, have become much more complicated. If you think about the case study, we're talking about an organisation that has just doubled in size. And when you've got an organisation that's increased that much, of course, people are going to say, oh, everything's different. Things aren't like they used to be. But what they have to recognise is that you need to put more effort into aligning your processes and systems to the culture that you're trying to create when you're 80 to 100. There's a lot more effort that goes into creating that than there is when there's two of you in a broom closet. So whether you like it or not, you've got it. Whether you're big or small, you've got it. Whether you're a traditional or more progressive leader, you've got it culture will happen, but it's not fixed. So how does culture shift over time? It's really going to be different for different businesses. Culture shifts can occur when organisations change in size. That obviously has a significant impact. Culture shift can occur when you have different leadership styles that come into play. And when you think about the case study that we've been talking about in today's session, there are key times in an organisation's growth that culture shift will happen. So the merger of two different firms is a really significant time for an organisation where they will have to start to really shift and understand what is it that we want to stand for as an organisation in the future and what are the norms that we need to change in our organisation to help us get there. So it's not as simple as saying, right, we've now done our rebranding exercise, we're one new firm together. If you don't start at that point understanding how do we shift culture in this organisation, what do we want it to look like, what are the things that are going to help 
help us do that and what are the things that are going to hold us back, then it's highly unlikely that you will find in 12 to 24 months that that firm has actually created a one new culture. You're more likely to find, in fact, that you end up with two siloed organisations bickering amongst each other for a period of time until finally half of the original firms have left and you've got a whole new employee cohort. And it's not just major structural upheavals or pandemics that shift culture either. More subtle internal mechanisms can shift and degrade it over time. When we think about culture shifts over time, one of the things that we've seen most recently is this idea around brilliant jerks. Organisations have people who are brilliant at their job that are great, but they're just not great to work with. People keep them in organisations because they're producing so much value and normally in relation to profits. So they go, we can't afford to get rid of them. Those tend to be the sorts of things that actually start to shift your culture and start to shift them in a way that maybe isn't so constructive. I imagine that even just acknowledging culture problems is very daunting to leaders. How do you demonstrate to them the return on investment, you know, for investing in culture? I find most of the conversation I have with leaders, if we start with culture, then you can see the shutters come down really quickly because often they feel like this is far too complex and whilst we're getting a more solid shift on people recognising the need to look at culture, it's still something that they kind of shy away from if they're not really experienced in this space. The second thing that I find is often when we talk to organisations about culture, in fact, it's a byproduct of the original issue that they've brought us in to look at. So, you know, I have an example around a firm that we dealt with last year, a client who were going through significant downturn in revenue. We were actually brought in because their accountant had said to us, look, their costs are rising dramatically around employees and we're not quite sure what's going on. We really want to understand that some more. And we went in and did a review and understood really quickly that they had a significant turnover. We're talking 150% in many of their departments. That was having a flow-on effect to really low customer satisfaction. There was lots of frustration coming from their customers. It was on all of their Facebook sites. You could see it in their reviews, and that was then leading also to a downturn in revenue. So we had all of these complicating factors, and when we did the review, we got down to some really core leadership issues that were impacting culture significantly. So employees were very quickly coming in, getting trained up, starting to deliver value, and then recognising this is not the place that we want to be. So when you look at examples like that, it becomes really obvious why you would invest in shifting culture. There's clearly a lot to understand about how culture works on an operational level. But for our experts, there's a couple of key things they'd ask businesses to take away. The one thing for me that people who are listening to this podcast can take away is the message I think is around leaders need to walk the talk and then they need to have the courage to address the behaviours that don't align to the culture, no matter who the person on the team is. And so as a result, you can't tolerate brilliant jerks. From my perspective, there's a couple of things. It's recognising that every single person in an organisation has an impact on culture. You have an impact on the team that you work in. You have an impact on the people around you. And you get to choose how you show up into the office every day. So I think the first thing is taking personal accountability for the role every individual plays in the culture of their organisation and the culture of the team around them, I think is critical. The second thing I would say is as a leader that is even 
even more pronounced. So if you're a leader in an organization, you have a profound effect on the people around you and you get to decide how you want your behaviors to support the culture that you want to create. In Joe's introduction, he touched on empowerment and the new line of thinking that empowering workers to make decisions is at the heart of influencing culture for the better long term. I'm a big believer in empowering people. And I think that we saw in the example with Sarah White in relation to her progressive approach and how she has an open and flat leadership style. I think that that's what we're seeing more of in organisations that are being more successful. So I constantly think of an example that aligns with what Sarah's doing is Atlassian. I know Atlassian are a massive beast now, but, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, They were a small software company that was doing really well. But what really set them apart is they really tapped into this notion of autonomy and the notion that people are better when they believe that their actions are self-initiated. So in other words, we are not remote control cars being controlled by leaders being told what to do all the time. We all have brains. As long as we understand the boundaries of our work, you have the autonomy to do and be whatever you want. And at last, we were able to really harness that concept, which empowered people to be creative, to be innovative. And as a result, they turned into a billion-dollar business that's on stock exchange that is just leading the way in relation to workforce culture consistently in the top 50 places to work in Australia and also globally. So I think that the really the new thinking of empowering people, that's that's where we've got to head towards. There's a book by Patty McCord, who was the head of HR for Netflix. So again, a similar sort of environment that you're talking about. And I love they talk about their, you know, we hire smart, capable adults and then we let them do what we hire them to do. And it's a very similar sort of vein and what you're talking about there. And I think great leaders now recognize that they need to surround themselves with capable, smart people who have different strengths to them and then empower them to do their work. And as far as the big takeaways as we move through the COVID-19 environment, Janine says that there are some additional key considerations for this unique time. You're managing organisations often through a downtime. So all of the security issues that come to play in organisations where people are feeling rightly or wrongly that their roles might be at risk. I think there's a huge amount of effort that leaders need to put into recognising that that is a huge concern for employees across Australia, across the world right now, and putting the time and effort into having those really frank and honest discussions that help people understand where they're at. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that we're often all working in really different ways right now and that also involves a high level of investment from our leaders to recognise that, you know, we've got parents like myself you know, working from home, parenting, teaching from home, all of those sorts of things and trying to be the best that we can be as members of our organisations as well. So having to really invest in understanding what are the elements of our culture that right now are supporting us to do great things and what are the elements that have maybe held us back in the past and how can we shift them to make sure employees are supported to do their best work. Will this influence organisation culture in the coming months and years? So I think that we've already seen that it has. And what I've loved about this time right now is it's catapulted organisations forward. So I think one of the things that we've observed with our clients is that 
organisations as a whole have responded pretty well. So they've gone with the well-being, they've gone with the safety of their people. Even organisations that I know that I work with that aren't orientated that way to begin with. So I think what's going to be really interesting for all organisations moving forward is people have responded quite well to, to that sort of support from their leaders and from their businesses. I actually think we're going to see a bit of a move moving forward with regards to culture of it being really humanistic, really people-centred. The level of humanity that is coming through, I think, is so powerful. The number of leaders I've seen get up and say, wow, I'm really struggling with this. I have um, so many decisions I'm making on a daily basis that I've never had to make before. Let me see how I can get through this. I think there's a huge amount of forgiveness that comes from people within an organisation where they see that kind of mindset. So interesting that this situation has maybe made some organisations that didn't have that kind of culture to implement it and this hopefully will continue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that they're probably getting feedback from their people that they want this. People are doing check-ins, asking questions that actually really matter to people. Whereas prior to this pandemic, I think if you ask a lot of people, how often did your manager or your leader ask you how you were feeling or ask you if you felt safe or if you needed more engagement? These are things that probably leaders weren't doing a lot of. And again, one of the things that COVID's allowed us to do is probably like sit back, stop, reflect and think, well, what exactly do our people want? And what people want is they want to feel valued. They want to feel recognised. And so as a result, I just feel like we're moving into a more humanistic approach to culture and approach to how our organisations would run, which I think is a really positive step. Thank you to our expert guests, Janine Waters and Dr Joe Okino. You're listening to In Business with BDO. Remember to subscribe and rate this podcast in your favourite podcast app and send us your comments and questions to podcast at bdo.com.au. I've been Jennifer Mary and we'll see you next time when we explore another topic essential to the way we do business and live our modern lives.